I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. JBR Capital has sponsored the Intercooler podcast for several months now. You've probably heard me talk about the company before. In that time, I've come to really understand what it is that makes JBR Capital different to other car finance companies. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I'd say it's this. Car finance is all JBR Capital does. Might sound like a minor detail, that, but in fact, it's really important. It means JBR Capital has a profound understanding of the car marketplace and of car buyers, an understanding that other finance companies could only hope to have. In fact, that very focused approach is exactly why the company was started in the first place. We recently had Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital, on the podcast, episode 106, if you want to go back and listen. And he explained that he started the company when he realized that general finance lenders actually didn't understand cars or car buyers particularly well at all. So he spotted that gap in the market and he founded JBR Capital to fill it. So before you buy your next car, be it a supercar, sports car, classic car, a hypercar, or a luxury car, even if it's a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. And it really helps us if you tell them that the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 119 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Um, and Andrew, we're talking about the great road races. Mille Emilia, Targa Florio, Carrera Panamericana, others in there as well. Um, there's a whole lot to get stuck into. I think for a lot of people, this is we're going to be referencing a golden age of motorsport. Um, do you see it that way? I bet you do. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know... You... <laughs> The reason it's a golden age of motorsport is because it stopped a long time ago, and it stopped a long time ago because people kept dying. Yeah, it was dangerous. Um, so, you know, yeah, I do. I, I, <laughs> I do regard it as a golden age of motorsport, and, you know, and you know the people... Uh, the, the, the only thing I, I, I find sort of in any way ethically difficult is, is when, you know, crowds and spectators um, get caught up in it because, as we know, that has happened in the past. But, you know, I, th- I think if drivers... I've always thought this, you know, knowing the risks they t- take... 
um, they're taking on want to get in cars and do that, then you know I've always thought that that's you know that's that, that, that's their decision. And there were some epic epic events, um, and you know just those three that you that you named. They're some of the most you know revered races names um in all the motorsports and it'll be nice to have a, you know just just to sort of talk about them and uh, um and the challenge of driving them uh, not that even i'm old enough to have done any of them um properly but i've been around all the circuits and um they're, they're just completely different to i mean motor racing as we know it today um compared to what it was when they were doing it it's it's, it's almost a different sport um and and I think probably rightly so, but um, yeah, there were some epic, epic um, events back then. Um, which yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, I mean, I sort of grew up on them, um, and the drivers and the histories and the yeah. So we'll get into all of it, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad that they were gone, but they, they but they also have no place in modern motorsport. They had to go, didn't they, really? Um, so before we get stuck in, let me just do another website reminder. And we're going to keep pushing this because it's important to us. But our new website went live uh, almost a couple of weeks ago. Um, the-intercooler.com. Go and check it out. Um, it's our new home. It's the Intercooler's new home. Um, you can start a one, uh, take out a subscription and you'll start with a one-month free trial. Um, and uh, just as a reminder, actually, for existing app subscribers... Who are wondering how to get into the website go to the app first that's what you need to do go to the app first find the page along the top called website and then follow the instructions in there it will take you seconds and you'll have full access to the website that's what you need to do if you're an app subscriber um, <clears throat> all right then well let's talk about these races a bit more broadly i mean i've named three there there, there are others but it's it's kind of difficult to know where to stop um, including road races in this sort of category because Le Mans was a road race, Spa initially was a road race. Um, what yeah, is it I mean, that they all were. Yeah. What is it that we're talking I mean, about the, really then? I think it's a conceptual thing, isn't it? There's no such thing as a formal definition of what a road race is. I mean, you know, to an extent, the Monaco Grand Prix is still a road race insofar as it's entirely held on public roads. Um, but you know, years and years back, almost all races were road races because there were no racetracks. I mean, Brooklands was the first purpose built, um, racetrack. It just predated, uh, Indianapolis 907. But, um, you know, if you think of all the places that, you know, we think of as, you know, racetracks today, you know, okay. So, you know, take Spa. I mean, that was, that's just, you know, the original Spa was just a load of roads connected together. Le Mans was exactly the same. So, you know, were the early Le Mans, which, you know, I think the, the Le Mans was run entirely on public roads um, until, I'm just trying to think, probably the 70s when they got rid of the White House corner um, and produced the Porsche curves. Um Pretty much all of that was, and as we know, you know, probably what even today, half a lap, more than half a lap, is take, takes place on public roads. So, so what is a road race? I mean, I see it as something which is held over enormous distances, where you have laps of not seven or eight miles, but seventy or eighty miles, or you know, um, really, really long laps. I mean, okay, here's one way of perhaps looking at it: it's a race where. You, where drivers couldn't reasonably be, unless they were locals, reasonably expect to learn the circuit um, in any kind of conventional time period. 
And so there was actually a different discipline. You know, you had to drive them in a different way because you couldn't learn where every lump, bump, breaking point, turning point, apex, exit, every camber change, every surface change, all that sort of stuff, which even at a place like the Nürburgring, if you go there enough, you can learn all that stuff. Um, you know, somewhere like <laughs> the Carrera Panamericana, which was a 3,000 kilometer race, you're just not going to do it. Someone like the Millimilia, um, I mean, someone like the Millimilia, and I think I think the Carrera, the Carrera too. Uh, another problem that the, the, the drivers have is they kept on changing the course. And the Millimilia, it's called a thousand miles. Sometimes, you know, that race was thick end of eleven hundred miles long. I think it was one which is under nine hundred. So it was an entirely nominal, notional thing, um, and so you could never learn the course. And so, you know, that I guess is the. The big character is you're talking about long, long laps. Um, so yeah, I think that's, and, and how do you distinguish that from, from rallying? Well, rallying doesn't have sort of laps, does it? Um, but, but then again, you know, rallying is still, I guess, today a form of road racing, isn't it? You still got cars, you know, um, certainly tarmac rallies screaming down public roads, you know, bouncing off trees and so on. So mm. yeah, but that's, that's how I kind of think of it. I think the fact is there are all these disciplines of racing overlap slightly, don't they? Um, so the boundaries are kind of fuzzy, but yet we know what we're talking about, and um, we can we probably all just in, innately, inherently appreciate the difference between the Targa Florio and Le Mans. It's we can see how it's a different, slightly different discipline, um, and really nothing exists like it today, um, at least not on four wheels, because if you go to the Isle of Man at the right time in the summer, and you'll watch motorbikes screaming round the Snaefell mountain course that that has has got to be about as close as we get these days isn't it certainly when i was there that's the kind of sense that you, there is a sense of you are watching something from another age okay the bikes are state of the art and you know and everything else but when you're sitting at the side of the road and the bikes are coming past you sometimes not feet, but inches away from you. And there is nothing between you and them. Um, and, you know, and we know about the, you know, the tragedies that happen up there. Um, then you, you do get that sense of, a, of, another, of, being, of existing briefly in another era um, where life was an awful lot cheaper than it is now. Um, and I think, you know, and I think I, I said so at the time, I think that's the closest you can get to having an idea of what it was like to spectate at a real Millimilia, not the rerun they have these days, or real Targa Florio, or the Carrera Panamericana, um, where there was there was no safety because the you know the tracks were too long to marshal. Um, you certainly couldn't put barriers up. You know there'd be the you know, there would be marshal posts, and there might be the odd hay bale at well-known accident spots. Um, but you know, you'd also you know, you'd be driving along, and if you know the local farmer, you know, decided he need to you know move his cows from one field to the next, um, you know, that was another thing. You know, wild dogs, you know, all sorts of wildlife, um, you know, stray people, and that was all. And, and the crowds, you know, there was nothing between you know, and you know, the, 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 there are some, you know, there are some terrifying um, stories that came back from things like the Millimilia of drivers just having to drive at three-figure th speeds through crowds, hoping they get out of the way. Um, it is all fairly unimaginable, but, but it happened. 
It happens. So it's something that, that there's something adventurous and intrepid about this form of racing, but also it's yeah. very it's super dangerous. There's no question about that. Um, and uh, drivers are not just up against their cars, up against the competition, not just up against the conditions like they are in in any other form of motorsport, but also against the terrain, the environment, the landscape. Um, I suppose it's only rally drivers who still face that sort of challenge these days. But 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 think about a modern rally car. You know, you yeah. have you you and I have seen rally cars. You know, have the most unbelievable accidents. I mean, the most you know, which in any other era um, would have resulted in you know a fireball calamity, and they walk away. Um, you know, thank goodness. Um, I mean, it does happen, um, particularly with spectators. But in fact, you know, drivers and co-drivers. Um, it's very, very rare, isn't it, these days that you know that the, that the worst happens. Whereas you know, way back, it was it was an accepted part of, and that's another thing that you has in common with the Isle of Man. It is accepted these days on the Isle of Man um, that during the course of that event, a number of people will die. It's just it's part of um, nobody wants it. But everybody accepts it that it is just going to happen. If you want to have an event like that, um, that is what is going to happen. And, and and back in the days of road racing in cars, it was absolutely accepted that that people would die, uh, and they did in their droves. Not and not just drivers, but spectators too. Yeah, after the or during the TT this year, I think I saw more um, sort of controversy around that, particularly on social media, than I have done in earlier in previous years. Um, and I, I just wonder if that's going to become more and more of an issue for the Isle of Man TT and for its organisers. I wonder if attitudes are just going to change around that in the coming years. I suppose we'll see. Um, what were the origins then of road racing? How far do we have to go back? Uh, well, I mean, t- technically 1894, okay, which was only, what, eight years after the accepted birth of the car. Um, the first one was from Paris to Rouen. Uh, which I think is about 80 miles, uh, there were over 100 entrants, only 17 finished. It was won by... There were cars in that race which were... <laughs> get this, they were powered by... Well, all things you'd expect, so petrol, electricity and steam. Yeah. But there are cars in the intri- entry list whose source of power is described as gravity. <laughs> well, that's only going to work for part of the course, isn't it? <laughs> well, exactly. I guess you just get out and push it the rest push. of the way. I don't know. I don't know. But by 1903, um, so less than 10 years later, uh, you had these massive road races. The one I'm going to reference is the Paris-Madrid road race. You know, long way, 1903. And you had cars... Um, big things like Panhards and Mercedes and Moors. Uh, and these cars were capable of 80, 90 miles an hour. Um, but they still had, they were still in all other regards, totally primitive. So they'd actually gained the ability to go very fast, um, but absolutely not the ability to go around corners or stop or do anything else. Um, and that race was carnage. That was one race. I think eight people died in it, uh, including Marcel Renault, um, one of the Renault brothers, and and his his brother Louis was in it too, um, and you know, but by then you know road racing was the way people because there were no tracks, um, and then you got things like the uh, the Peking Paris, the nineteen hundred and seven Peking Paris, um, well literally there were I think only about eight cars set off from Peking, 
Uh, most of them actually made it, um, astonishingly enough. It was won by Prince Scipione Borghese in a Natala, um, which is an amazing looking thing. But they literally, they drove them from, well, what was then Peking to Paris. There was one bloke, um, no, two people who broke down somewhere in the Gobi Desert and they only survived by drinking the water in their radiator. Um, so, you know, so by 1907, 115 years ago, it was, you know, road racing was, was a massive thing and it wasn't, you know, you know, let's see if we can get this car to the shops. It was drive across continents in these things and it kind of evolved um, from there. And, you know, by, well, even by then, the Targa Florio had started. 1906, I think, was the first one of those. Um, yeah, and so, and it was happening all over the place. You know, the French Grand Prix in Dieppe was held over a 47-mile lap um, there was also a French Grand Prix at Le Mans, which has held over an enormous circuit, uh, but nowhere near the current one is. So, yeah, I mean, it did establish itself very quickly. And as I said, because there were no circuits, they were all road races. Um, but, yeah, so that's how mm. it started. OK, we'll come back to the Tiger Florio in a moment. But let's talk Mille Emilia. Um, and uh, so first, first round in 1927. It's a bit like Faulty Towers, the Mille Emilia, because... <laughs> Forty Towers. You assume it ran for years and years and years because it's such a popular, well-loved show. In fact, there are only ever twelve episodes. The Mila Milia only ran twenty-four times. Um, it was interrupted by war for a long time, of course. Um, but uh, and actually, it seems totally bizarre to think of this now. But for a few years in the fifties, it was a round of the World Sports Car Championship, um, and so. Because of that, you had the fastest work sports cars there. You had the fastest drivers there um, over nominally a thousand miles around Italy. And it's a single lap. And as you said, the route changed over the years. And sometimes it was more than a thousand miles, sometimes less. It's only when you see the route of the Mille Miglia laid over a map of Italy that you realise just how far a thousand or a thousand or so miles really is. So they always started in Brescia in the north of Italy, not too far from Milan. Um, and then the, the, the version of it that I had a look at the other day, it went down the coast to Rome, all the way on the, on the west coast, all the way across Italy to the east coast, um, up the east coast, and back to Brescia. So it's, it's such a long distance um, and at full race speed the whole time. So, I mean, just, just imagine, you know how tiring it is to do... I'm sure you've done a thousand mile journey in a day. I did it. I did Bristol to Modena once, and I think that's 1100 or something, just at normal road speeds, 70, 80 miles an hour. It's exhausting. Yeah. And you're stopping. Sitting on the motorway without having to think about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh. yeah. We'll come on to um, Moss's run at the Millimilia shortly. Yeah. But because, the first one, yeah. the first Millimilia took 23 hours. To mm. get round the lap, yeah. Well, it's not surprising, really. What was that in? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I can't remember. I, it would have been Italian. Um, okay, yeah. I, I can, I'm going to ask you a question. Go on. How many times did non-Italian drivers win the Mille Miglia out of the 24 runnings? Three. Very good. Two. Mm. So Mars Sterling and... in 55, Rudy Caracciolo in 1931. Uh, I'm not counting here the 1940 Millimilia, um, which was won by BMW, but it wasn't the Millimilia. It was like they had a they, they 
they mapped out a completely different circuit. It did start in Brescia, but it never went anywhere near Rome. And it was it was short. It went from Brescia to Cremona to Mantua and back. It was like a ninety mile lap, and they went round it ten times. Mm, not so same. to me, that's so that's not the millimilia. So yeah, so excluding the nineteen forty race, it was it was won um, twice by non-Italian drivers and once, well, only one other mark, not well, only one non-Italian mark has ever won it. Um, with Mercedes-Benz, which uh, won it in 31 and 55. So there you go. It was absolutely an Italian benefit. And, and the point being is that local knowledge was everything. Um, you know, when, when, when Moss won it in 55, and I'm never going to come back to it, you know, he did something like 10 laps in road cars and race cars just to try and get his head around the circuit and make those famous pace notes and everything else. Whereas if you'd grown up in that part of the world and you'd been driving those, I mean, the advantages that, that you had in just knowing even bits of the route um, were you know, insuperable, which is why, you know, Italians always did so incredibly well on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I quite believe that even the locals, the Italians, knew every mile of it, every corner. No, but what they can definitely learn is the bits that you have to know. So the dangerous bits or the pinch points. I, yeah. t- I absolutely believe that they can learn those bits and the rest of it they can drive on site. Um, so, yeah, it's a And also, advantage. you know, they, they did it time and time again. You know, someone like Piero Taruffi, who won the last one in 1957. Um, now, again, I can't remember. I think he did his first. He might have done his first before the war. You know, he probably did 11 millimillions. And if you think how many practice laps and how you know and, and the fact that he was an italian and 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 knew that part of the world well anyway and the number of times he did it because it was always there um you know you do just build even though the course changes you do just and even if you don't know all of it any areas where you know, you know which way that you, you you know as well as i do Dan, that if you know which way how much faster you can get around the circuit you know the one you the one you don't i mean it's the difference between being competitive and being absolutely hopelessly nowhere um, yeah, I've been there. So yeah, yeah. You could see why, given how long the route was. Um, at its peak, it's estimated there were five million spectators, um, and so you can see why certain manufacturers were keen to do it and keen to try and win it because it's huge exposure, isn't it? Um, so okay, let's talk about fifty-five then. Um, this was probably the most famous of them all, do you think, or is that just a British perspective? No, but with that, well, okay, the only other one which has got which, which, which can okay, there was nineteen thirty, I think, um, which is the one where Achille Vazzi was leading and Nuvolari was gaining on him, um, and it must have been very late, I guess, it must have been towards the end of it, um, because to fool Vazzi, Nuvolari turned off his lights and drove in the dark, <laughs> and by the time. <laughs> Um, and, by, and by the time Vazzi realised he was there, he was passed and gone. Um, but not that. But no. So the the only possible candidate as being as famous fifty five was sadly fifty seven, and only because of the appalling accident that happened to De Portago and Ed Nelson um, that resulted in sixteen people dying. Um, but no, in terms of an actual race, you know, fifty five is head and shoulders, knees and toes, the most famous of them all. Uh, not just because it was won by Sterling, but because it was won in a record time that was never beaten by anybody. Um, so, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, Mercedes-Benz uh, works team, um, the 300 SLR, which, as we know, was not a development of the 300 SL, despite the name. 
It was a W196F1 car with a different body on top. Um, and a bigger engine, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that is a serious purpose-built racing car. Um, and, of course, it was Jenks, Dennis Jenkinson, in the co-driver's seat um, as the navigator. And it's, it's sometimes said, I think, isn't it, that this was the invention of pace notes, rally pace notes as we know them today. But I don't, that, that's actually not true. Similar systems had been used in the past. Um, but I don't think there's any question that this method they came up with, Jenks and Moss, was well, one of the, except the reasons. It was, except this is one of the great millimillia myths. Um, Moss had nothing to do with the notes. I don't think that Jenks did. This is there's a bloke called John Fitch, um, who is a bit of a hero of mine, uh, an American race driver, and he was due to drive in the millimillia, uh, and he had the idea of having a navigator to help, and he had the idea of creating pace notes for that navigator, um, and he led both the idea and the navigator to Sterling because he knew he was in a standard 300 SL showroom car. So he knew he had no hope. And so in an act of incredible kindness, he had the idea and he had the navigator and he gave both to Sterling. Um, And then what happened happened. So, I mean, there wasn't an intercom between them. So they devised a series of hand signals, um, which Jenks would uh, would clearly deploy the right hand hand signal for what was coming up. And Moss would drive to that. Um, And they had a, you can still you can find pictures of this online. They called it the toilet roll, a mechanism for unrolling this scroll that contained all the notes for the entire route. Um, and so, and that's how they did it. And without that system, without that navigator, there's no way Moss would have been able to to compete with the locals who had that local knowledge, as we've been discussing. So, that was, I mean, that the car and Moss's driving is is clearly what won it for them. Um, just imagine being Jenks sitting in that thing. I'm not a good passenger at the best of times, but c- can you imagine how exhilarating it would have been to witness firsthand one, one, word the, for it, yeah. <laughs> one of the great feats of driving? Um, I mean, he did go off the uh, Sterling. Did go, he did bin it a couple of times. I mean, the car yeah. went off the road at least twice. You see the photos um, of it, and, don't and you? Once, with... once, I think he had to. They had to get the crowd to push him back on the road, um, and it was nearly it was nearly a disaster. Uh, but Jenks was one of those. He was a well. He I mean he was, you know, he was a sidecar racer. Okay, so I imagine that sitting next to Sterling was a bit of a you know, bit of a busman's holiday for him, um, because he was he, he was used to sitting you know in the side of a sidecar, um, and there was one bit where he felt so ill, um, he had to lean over the side of the car to throw up, at which stage the wind stream. Um, pulled his glasses off um, and he managed to get back into the car, dig around, find his spare glasses, which he brought with him, and he didn't miss a note. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. don't go thinking that this was 1955, so they're not going that fast. Do not be fooled. They were doing at times 170, 180 miles an hour. Yeah, about that. Almost exactly that, yeah. So yeah, 175. Really I think 175 was the sort of documented top speed of the car. Which, yeah. well, you know, the fact is, they averaged. I mean, they did it in. I should look this up. I used ten, to ten, this. ten hours, seven minutes, and forty-eight seconds. Oh, nine hundred ninety-two okay. miles. Yeah, average of ninety-eight point four miles an hour, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they they averaged. So that's how fast they went, and that averaged. includes the time when they're stopping to change tires, fill it up with fuel, check it out. Um, I think Sterling had to have a pee at some stage. 
Uh, and they still averaged... So actually, on the road running time, their average speed was well over 100 miles an hour. Um, so, you know, that's how... For, God, I for 10 hours? Uh, for, for, for 10 hours, which was le- much less than half the length of time it took to complete the first millimilia. Yep. 10 hours. And, and then... <laughs> and then after that, Sterling went to, he did all the sort of victory stuff. He then went to the Mercedes-Benz party that evening. And having been to the Mercedes-Benz party, he drove to Stuttgart. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's bananas, isn't it? That's just, that's just Sterling. Uh, Sterling. And also, I, th- I, th- I think Fangio gave him some, um, some, 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 some quite exciting pills. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> which Sterling used to talk about. Um, so, yes, by any modern standards, he wouldn't have been allowed in the race. But um, <laughs> back, then, back, back then, people... But, you, know, you had to, didn't you? I mean, imagine, you know, driving on your own for 10 hours, you know, in a road, normal road car on a motorway. You'd, you know, you'd, you'd be tired at the end of that. Imagine racing, yeah, around a course with several thousand corners. Um, no code, no, no one to take over the driving. Um, you know, you're probably a bit wired. You probably didn't get much sleep the night before. And then you go and do, of course you'd have to have something to keep you, you know, from, you know, passing out of the wheel, <laughs> frankly. Um, do you know, I didn't quite appreciate this until I started looking it up last week. But at this point, Moss was yet to win a world championship Formula Correct. One Grand Prix. Yeah. He was very much Fangio's understudy. He was uh, he was the boy wonder. He was the coming man, but he hadn't got there yet. It was it was really it was the first um, it was the first international massive win of his, yeah. and it really did set him on course for for greatness. I mean, he won the British Grand Prix very shortly after that. But yeah. no, you're absolutely right. He hadn't won a Grand Prix, so it's a breakout performance for him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and he's also he. Fangio was in that race in a um, in a similar car, yeah. um, and he he didn't have a co-driver, which was his decision. And actually, I yeah. think it's almost a moral decision, wasn't it? He, um, I think he lost a friend who was navigating. Urutio, nineteen thirty-eight, I think. Yeah, and some mm. big road race before the war. You're absolutely right. And so he preferred to drive alone, um, yeah. which is on a race, particularly the Millimilia, more than any other race has ever been. Probably that's a huge. Uh, disadvantage um he did have technical issues with his car but he finished 32 minutes behind moss yeah but but sterling was I mean, sterling would say that fangio was better than him in a formula one car mm. but in a sports car sterling was just better than fangio mm. <laughs> that's quite a thing isn't it yeah wow what a performance and people think now that that car 722 moss's 300 slr is maybe the most valuable car in the world I think it has to be. Well, I mean, it's kind of that or the Ulenhout Coupe, but there's only one 722 and there are two Ulenhout Coupes. Um, yeah. Yeah, must be. Must be the most valuable car in the world. Bloody hell. What an event that was. Um, all right, mm. let's move on. Targa Florio. Yes. On Sicily. Oh, one, one, one last thing. One, one last thing. Go on. I just want to, because I have no way of proving this, but I just have one last thing, just a little just thing to plant in your head. Okay. So 1957, the race ends when Deportago's Ferrari has a puncture and he goes off the road um, and into the crowd and 16 people die. Um, that meant that over the entire duration of the Millimilia, um, I think 56 people died in those 30 years, 24 races that they had it. I have often wondered 
how many people would have died on those roads during the normal course of stuff if there hadn't been a millimilia? How many road traffic accidents in that, in that, in, over that 30 year period, over that thousand mile route? You know, it would, during that time. I don't know. It, it may be that the millimilia saved lives. It may be that fewer people died um, as a result of those roads being closed than would have done had they been open. I don't it's know. It's very possible. It's an interesting point. Yeah, because mm. it's it's such an enormous course. Exactly. Um, an interesting one to ponder. All right, Targa Floria then. Um, on Sicily. Yeah. Um, yes. Now, my notes here say the world's oldest sports car racing event. I don't know if that can be backed up, can it? Um, but it too was uh, a round of the World Sports Car well, Championship. Well, it's interesting. So it's that or the... It's a different thing. You know, so the, the tourist trophy still happens today. The tu- there is a tourist trophy race today. Um, but it's not, it's not tied to a location. It drifts around all over the place. Um, so it's just the name of a race, which can be held anywhere. But that's, that's the oldest race that's still... And also the other thing is um, the tourist trophy is still happening. But I think the first tourist trophy was in 1905. Um, so it's not the same sort of thing. I think it, it is probably the oldest race that happened, you know, that, 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 that happened on the same course, because it certainly predates the Indy 500, um, which is, I think, probably the most likely other competitor. <clears throat> so like the Milamilia, the Targa Florio, there were several different routes over the years. Um, yeah. But I think the one that we kind of... Uh, get it get worked up about now is the the Piccolo Madonie, isn't it? The forty five yeah, mile little one. The yeah, little that's one. That's, 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 there were three. There was the big, yeah, the grande, <laughs> and then there was a middle one. There was a there, there was one in the middle, and the little one, the baby yeah. one, is forty five miles long. And they do it eleven times. Yeah. Um, now, you wrote a piece about trying to retrace the route of the Targa Florio um, on your yes. family holiday by Fiat yes. Stilo. It's on the app on yes. the website if you want to go and find it. But yes. I just want to try and understand what the roads are like. Um, they're country lanes, but they're country lanes around mountainous countryside. So they are, you know, in the way of all country lanes, they're very narrow. Um, but they also, you know, they're very, very windy. I mean, there are, you know, people go on about, you know, the Nürburgring's got 100 and whatever it is, 120, 130 corners. Um, a, one lap of the Targa Floria was about 900. Yeah. <laughs> about 900 corners. Um, and, you know, you just... And, and I think what must have been most difficult about it, because, you know, you get to... You know, most circuits have... And, and, and to be fair, the Targa Floria, even the, the little circuit, had did right at the very end of it have a big, long straight. But you were at the end of the lap then. Uh, but for the rest of the time, you must have just you just never stopped you never stopped turning so there's no time at all to ever relax just to sort of take a breather and just you know like you know drivers always you know legendarily did on the Mulsanne straight they'd sort of you know they'd stretch their toes and they'd check the dials and they'd look out the window and they'd just give themselves a bit of a break from it you never got that at the Targa Florio uh it was just 45 miles of utter insanity from start to finish where if something went wrong um you know, you either went off a ravine or into the side of a mountain. Um, and so, you know, the, so the levels of concentration required must have just been absolutely incredible. Um, and the drivers regarded it as, certainly, you know, after um, 
you know, the Carrera and the Melamilia stock, they regarded it as one of the greatest challenges that any driver could ever go and take on, just because of the... And even though they had two drivers, because you'd have to, um, even to go... I think they sort of would do, like, three laps, three laps, and four laps or something. Uh, and just to do a single stint there was absolutely exhausting. Um, and I'm just, you know, having been around it uh, with my family, my vomiting family in a Fiat Stilo station wagon... Um, it is well. I've, I didn't even make. I didn't even do a full lap, but I, I did enough of it to get a, a good idea of what it was like. Um, just unbelievable. I mean, you just couldn't race anything like round yeah. roads like that anymore. To illustrate how tight and twisty it was, <clears throat> the fastest lap ever um, was set by Helmut Marco in an Alfa Romeo sports car. Um, he did a lap in thirty-three minutes and forty-one seconds, which is an average. Oh, can of... I... Hang on, can I guess? Go on. <laughs> Yeah, I've got it in my head that no one did an 80 mile an hour lap. I don't think there was ever an 80 mile an hour lap done of the Targa Florio stuff, of course. You're absolutely right by the slimmest margin because Marco did a 79.693 mile an hour. Oh, okay. (laughs) So he's probably seconds shy, isn't he? Of um, oh, it must have been so annoying. Yeah, I might think he's Austrian, he wouldn't care because he'd be in kilometers, wouldn't he? But yeah. yeah. Well, so you think he did, of, he did you know, 128 he, kilometers, so fairly close to 130. Yeah. So if you think of, he also won Le Mans in 1971 in a yeah. 917k. He would have been doing 150 mile an hour laps. There gives you an idea of the different sort of circuit. So you that do 150 fast. mile an hour lap average at Le Mans in 1971. Yeah. 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 yeah so that is a and, huge difference. And 80. 70 miles an hour slower at the Targa Florio. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, I'm sure, the reason that actually, and any death is obviously appalling and tragedy, but so few people died um, on the Targa Florio. It ran mm. for much, much longer than any of yeah, the others. Because it's just not that fast. It just wasn't that fast. It started in 1906. Uh, it, was, it, it, it was last. It basically died. We didn't quite die. It lost world championship status in 1973 uh, after the 1973 event because um, the FIA mandated that all circuits that became, that were part of the world championship had to have um, barriers. Uh, and clearly, you couldn't put barriers up around that course. So it lost world championship status in 1973. And then it ran, I think, until 77 as a sort of national event um, before it just sort of died completely. And I think in all that time, in 70-something years of running that event, obviously less of the war years, I think only six people died. Mm. That's very different to some of the others, isn't it? Well, where, where six people was a perfectly, you know, uh, normal head count for a single race. And mm. you know, certainly something like the Carrera Panamericana, which we, which we will come on to, mm. um, or any of those early road races. Um, yeah. So, so <clears throat> to illustrate a little bit further how difficult it was to learn this piccolo circuit, and again, presumably the locals had a huge advantage there, um, and they didn't have navigators, so they would share a car with another driver, with a co-driver, but separately, so you didn't have someone in the car with you telling you where to go, like Moss did on the Mila Milia. Mel Nichols wrote something that was illuminating. Um, he wrote something for us on the app and on the website um, he went to the Targa Florio in the, I guess it was in the early 70s. He, he drove a Corvette around there. But he also sat in a Ferrari Dino with Brian Redman, who was wrecking the lap. So this is before 
the event one year. And th- this, this is the snippet I want to read out. Just as a hard-driving Redman, who'd won the 1970 Targa with Joe Siffert in a Porsche 90803, was pronouncing that he'd at last remember which, which way the turns went, we darted into what he reckoned was a fast right-hander. It tightened back in on itself hard. Oh, Christ, exclaimed Brian, arms flailing as he flung the Dino around in a lurid slide. This bloody circuit. So a guy who won it still wasn't quite certain which way it went. The other, the other thing I, I, I would say, which actually, and Redmond is the perfect illustration of this, uh, which, is, which gives you an idea of just how different things were back then. I think it would have been 71, also in a 9083. Um, he binned it. And it was, he had an enormous accident. Um, he was big, there was a big fire. He was badly burnt. Um, he got out of the car and he was eventually uh, ended up in a clinic. It took Porsche 12 hours to find him. Yeah. This and that was, only 12 when, hours. that was only when Pedro Rodriguez and Richard Atwood walked into a local clinic and there he was. And there he was. And of the car, he told me this, of the car, all that was left was a hole of the ground with a crankshaft in it. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. So, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, the idea that you could simply lose your driver. So, you know, you just say, bye, Brown, off you need, and he heads off in his lap, um, and you don't see him again. You have no idea what's happened to him. He's just gone missing. And you find him, presumably, sometime in the early hours of the following day, um, you know, badly injured um, in some clinic somewhere. I can't imagine it. It's really unthinkable can't. now. It really is yeah. unthinkable. Do you know what? Moss won that one in 55 too. He did. He oh, did. Yeah. What a year that was for him. What a year. Uh, okay. Should we move on to the Carrera Panamericana then? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, this, this, this was the daddy of road races. This, was, this, this made the Targa and the Millimilia look like... <laughs> small beer by comparison i mean it was yeah. i mean there is there is there's crazy there's nuts mm. there's totally tonto and then there's the carrera panamericana it and was it only, insane it only ran a few times in the early 50s um yeah maybe it was too insane um and it was yeah people who competed in it considered it to be the most dangerous race of any type in the world um so more than two thousand miles um, and the the Pan American Highway um, ran almost the in, or runs almost the entire length of the America the American continents, doesn't it? Um, it does. It runs from Tierra del Fuego in the south. I mean, other yeah. than the Darien Gap, yeah. um, up to Alaska. Yeah. So extraordinary. And the the point of this was that the Mexicans had completed had completed their leg, and they wanted to celebrate that. And so they thought, well, why don't we have a race along it? Which is a a brilliant outlook on life. Um, so it's a couple thousand miles long, and it went from border to border, so all the way through Mexico. Um, and it was an utterly, utterly mad event. Um, there are a couple of famous stories. Uh, well, a bloke died, kind of set the tone, a bloke died on the first stage of the first section of the first ever event in 1950. Bloody hell. Yeah, so that did set the tone, didn't it? Um, let's talk about 1952. Um, when Kling and Clank won Kling in their Mercedes W194. Um, yeah. And this is, you've, I'm sure you've heard this story before, all of you listening. This was when um, they were running along at 120 miles an hour or something, um, and Kling, driving, failed to spot vultures sitting by the side of the road. Um, as the birds scattered, 
at the raw uh, of the 300SL, um, one went through the windscreen on Clank's side, smashed him in the face, knocked him unconscious, um, and he woke up fairly soon after, I imagine, bleeding badly from facial injuries. Um, and he ordered Kling to carry on, keep going, um, until their tyre change. 43 miles later. And yeah, you've the, just the had the a photograph of Kling, absolutely yeah. covered in blood. Yeah. And uh, so they got to their tyre stop. They eventually had um, steel bars, eight vertical bars fitted um, down the new windscreen to stop it happening again. And discussing the size of the the dead bird, they agreed that had a minimum um, 115 centimetre wingspan and weighed as much as five fattened geese. So it was a monster, this thing. Um, oh, goodness me. Imagine how much that hurt. Um, and they still went on and won the thing anyway. Um, I want to read this story, which was written by Bobby Unser. It's in his book. Um, and this was when he was a young man competing in the Carrera Panamericana alongside his father. Um, and it, it goes like this. <clears throat> On the second day, we were in 17th and coming up to pass the car of millionaire Carlos Panini and his daughter, Teresita. She was the registered driver. However, Carlos was behind the wheel instead and was in ill health. He shouldn't have been driving. He didn't even have a driver's license. The rules were that the slower car was to allow the faster car to pass if the faster car honked its horn. We were in the mountains, and I came up to Carlos and honked, but he wouldn't let me pass. This went on through about 10 turns, with Carlos blocking me each time. We were probably doing about 90 miles per hour at this point. The next time I tried to pass him, he bumped my front right fender, which almost pushed me off a sheer cliff to the left that was some 500 to 800 feet down. My left front tyre went over the edge, but fortunately I regained control of the car. Carlos overcorrected his car to the right and went straight into a solid rock wall. The car exploded on, on impact like an egg hitting a sidewalk. I didn't know it at the time, but Carlos was killed instantly. One of the rules of the race was that if you stop to help anyone, you are automatically disqualified. Seeing, seeing the explosive impact, I wanted to stop to help, but Daddy told me to keep going. He knew the rules and told me that people were there to help. That was hard for me. I slowed down to about 15 or 20 miles per hour. He insisted that I keep going, and grimly, I did. Can I give another little insight into this? Mm. In the 1951 race, it was actually, by Carrera standards, it was quite, uh, it was quite good on the head count. Only three competitors died. <laughs> but, yeah, but 750 cows died. What? 750 cows because basically the marshals if they saw a cow so much as moo in the direction of a of the road take one step they just shot it shot it oh my god it's amazing so they shot 750 like cows uh, it is just it, it's yeah um so um i mean i've i've, I've done the route um in a benz in fact I, I did i drove some of it in um the w194 that came second in 52 and I, what i just remember is you're going over these high mountain passes and, and probably my most abiding memory of it is on the apex of the hairpins when you've got these incredible drops of thousands of feet they're just crucifixes oh my god all around the exit all around the edges of the road 
um, where over the years, you know, people have just, you know, failed to stop. Um, and, you know, that was very, very sobering indeed. Um, and the speeds at which they were going. So the last one, I can understand why they stop it. You know, the last one. So the first one was in 1950 was won by a bloke with a brilliant name, Herschel McGriff. And Herschel McGriff in his Oldsmobile won at 76 miles an hour. Um, by 1954, Umberto Maglioli in a works prototype Ferrari averaged 107 miles an hour. So it was just getting faster and faster and faster. Uh, eight people died that year. The previous year, 1953, nine people had died. Um, and it was, it, it was just, it was just insane. Um, and, and, you know, I suspect if it had continued sooner or later, you would have had, um, an absolutely unimaginable calamity um so it kind of people say if you read books about it they'll say it was actually it wasn't worried about safety it was much more to do with financial and political considerations and it got stopped i don't know how true that is um but yeah so it ran five times between 1950 1954 um and that was that bloody hell i mean no wonder Mm. no wonder it got binned even if i don't know doesn't bear thinking about really um well that's the the great road races an amazing era um but unspeakably dangerous uh well okay well let's leave it there then um we've got a listener question coming up um before that please please remember to rate and review the podcast subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts please do do that it really helps you have been doing it but keep going um also thank you to jbr capital for sponsoring the podcast Um, you'll find contact details in the description below but if you're uh, looking to buy a new or used car with a value greater than £25,000 go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the uh, finance side and tell them the intercooler sent you Um, so this week's listener question comes from Mike Smith it's a simple one what makes a good driving shoe? (laughs) what makes a good driving shoe? yeah Um, oh it's quite it's um it's two things um it's size and it's uh, and it's material so you know um it depends what kind of car you're in but um you know most driving shoes um are quite narrow um and so you know because you tend to get you know in certain you know cars like caterums and that sort of thing they tend to have quite cramped footwells um and you don't you actually don't want to be treading on two pedals at the same time um in my case i can only drive it either in socks or in race boots um because the pedals are so close together um and the reason for that is well a it's quite cramped down there but b you know you need to be able to um heel and toe in those things so they put the pedals close together Uh, but also the material is um is quite important you need to be able to um so this sounds well, what's the word? Don't know, but um, pretentious. But you need to be able to feel the pedals. You need to, you know, you, you, you do. It's a, you know, it's a sensory connection to the car. And if you wear big, squishy training shoes, which soak it all up, um, you know, there is. Uh, you'd be surprised by how much feel for what the car is doing. You you you, you lose through your feet. Um, so you want, you know, a good hard sole which is going to transmit um, the feel of the pedals um to you um they need to be comfortable one of the things that i think that you know shoes don't do um 
you know, particularly somebody who drives old cars and cars and, and old race cars and things where heel and towing is actually, you know, not just desirable, but, um, but crucial is when your foot goes across to blip the throttle, um, certainly the way that I do it, I end up always end up doing it with, you know, the side of my foot where there isn't a hard sole. And if, if, if you're doing a very long race and you're doing like a sort of one hour stint, um, it can end up being quite painful. I know that's kind of like a, a ballast first world problem as you're ever going to get. Um, but if there was just a little bit of sort of, I don't know, rubber or hard material um, specifically designed for that bit of your foot, um, rather than just using the soft, fa- soft fabric at the side and the top of the shoe for it, that'd be better. Um, but huh, um, other than that, no, it's just they just need to be the right size and made of the right stuff. Yeah, and to understand how much of a difference it makes, you only have to wear race boots once. Um, in any car, in a race car, for instance, and you just realise how much more pedal feel you have. Um, and they should also be quite tight, so that there's no slack, there's no give between your foot and the sole of the boot. And, it, and then, when you've, when you've got a good race boot on, tightly done up, it makes a world of difference. Um, so it is an important consideration, it really is. Um, but there we go. Good question. Keep them coming in. However you want to get them across to us, uh, email us if you if you like info at the dash intercooler.com or send us a note on social media. Either way, we'll see it. Um, but get your listener questions across because we like ending the podcast this way and we will do it again next week. See ya. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 